God's word beginning in, in Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our God and our Redeemer. Lord, use these words to build us up that you might be exalted in all parts of our life. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Jim could not understand his problem. Everyone, told, everyone around him told him the solution to his thirst was just to go drink at the fountain. Yet the more he drank, the thirstier he became. Sometimes he drank so much and so often that he could not figure how he in any way could still be thirsty. But after the last gulp, he found that his thirst was even stronger than when he began. Jim's problem was that he was drinking from a fountain that had salt water in it. That fountain would never quench his thirst, but the more he drank, the more it would make him thirstier. Of course, the sermon this morning is not about where to get physical water. But just like the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well, many are drinking and drinking and will never have their thirst quenched. Thus, Jesus told her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I begin this way because when we come to the Bible's teachings on sexuality and desires, many have wrongly thought that the Bible is against pleasure and intimacy. I use that word, I'll probably use euphemisms throughout the morning, don't want to have to use the most graphic terms every time, but I'm sure you adults can read between the lines. But the thinking often is that the Bible's message is just bad, bad, bad. What we're talking about shouldn't even be talked about. Yet like water, the Bible's teaching is that from the right well and in the right context, those desires and actions are wonderful. However, from the wrong well and in the wrong context, you'll be like Jim or the Samaritan woman who drink and drink, but you'll never find your thirst quenched. Now, there's a challenge to this sermon, and that is all of us, myself included. Pastors aren't like uh, all, like we're not abnormal people. Well, we are. But we have desires just like everyone else. And all of us fill these pools. Not only do we all fill these pools, as a culture, we're inundated with this material. In the past, if you wanted to pursue something that was not right, you had to go to a certain part of town or go to the store and get something in a glossy cover. But now, you can barely do a search on the internet or get onto your social media without being inundated with things to click. 
It's not just images, though. It's our cavalier society that thinks anything but giving in to your desires is repressive, that it's harmful. It's the casual ways in which so-called family-friendly shows basically act like anything is normal and good. And sadly, even often professing Christians go right along with the same lifestyles and behaviors. You know, we desperately need God's wisdom so that we can use this aspect of our life in a way that will be truly enjoyable for us and honoring to Him. And Paul lays that out for us here in these verses. If you have a bulletin, you can see on the back the outline. First, in verse 3, we're going to see the extent of the holiness we should have. Then in verse 4, he's going to talk about how even our mouth should be used to speak holy things. And then lastly, in the last two verses, the seriousness of holiness. Now, there's a turn here because Paul was just telling us in verses 1 and 2 that we should give ourselves, we should be sacrificing our lives in love for others. In contrast, we shouldn't be using our lives to self-indulge, to serve ourselves. And he begins his list of things we didn't, shouldn't do in verse 3 with sexual immorality, which comes from the Greek word porneia. Now, obviously, that has a clear translation to the one way people sin in that way in our culture. Yet that word is used throughout the Bible to refer to any type of sexual sin. You know, the Bible is clear that God intended sexual activity be, be, to be between a man and a woman who are joined in marriage, not just promised to be so. And anything outside of that, the Bible declares to be sin. And just because you're married, that doesn't mean that you now have freedom to do anything you both can agree to. There are acts, even within marriage, that the Bible would condemn, such as sodomy. Now, if that weren't clear enough, Paul adds right after this, and all impurity, which strengthens the comment. You know, Paul probably had people in his day like ours in which they asked, but is it really sex, though? I mean, it all depends on what the meaning of is, is. In other words, throughout time, people have tried to get as close to breaking God's commands as possible and then try to use technical definitions to excuse themselves. Yet Paul adds all impurity, and then also adds at the end of this verse, not even a hint of these things to show God's rebuke of any deviance in this way. Now imagine being asked by a famous tour guide of the Grand Canyon, hey, I want you to come with me, and I'm going to give you this exclusive tour of the Grand Canyon. Well, you would be excited. This guy wants to take me. And if he took you and he said, okay, we're going to round this bend, and then there's this area that's really dangerous. Do not get off the path. Well, it'd be foolish to slightly veer off the path and then engage in the conversations with like, well, what does edge even really mean? I mean, edge of a cliff? What is a cliff? Well, if the guy brought you there and he wants to show you a wonderful thing, He's not then going to turn around and try and keep from you something good. He's warning you because he brought you to enjoy this great thing. In the same way, if God has given us this good gift, his rules aren't there to go, well, no, no, actually, that's the fun part, but I don't want you all to have fun. No, he wants us to stay on the path that will lead to the most pleasure. You see, Paul here is wanting us to realize God has given us something good, and yet we often ruin it. The rules aren't added to ruin our fun, but rather to protect and ensure it. And yet, Paul then adds an interesting third word to his list. It's there in verse 3, covetousness. 
Now, it could be that he's specifically thinking of don't covet another person's spouse, which is covered in the 10th commandment. Yet I think Paul's putting coveting there because he's getting to the heart of the issue are out-of-control desires. You know, covetousness is not just desiring something. It's the thought that without that, life is unfulfilling. You know, there's nothing wrong with desires. If you open your sock drawer and pull your sock on and your big toe goes right through, there's nothing wrong with going, I'd like another sock. If you want a spouse and you don't have one, that's not a bad thing. If you look at your car and you go, well, it's really falling apart, I'd like a new one. Those are not all bad desires. You can have many desires. The problem is that coveting moves from I desire to I must have this if I'm going to be happy. That's why five verses after this, sorry, not five verses after this, but in verse five, he'll say that covetousness is idolatry. You know, when we think of idolatry, we think of what's up here in heaven, Texas donuts, right over here on the road where they have those apple fritters. We think of that little Buddha there in the corner. That's an idol. That's idol worship. And yet the Bible says idol worship is much more than that. One author writes, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. You see, biblical faith looks at all the options of life, you know, power, possessions, any kind of enjoyment, and it says those are all good, but you know what's the best out of everything? God. He is the best. He is the one who is fully going to satisfy me. Nothing else even compares to God. Thus, coveting is to say, God, what you've given me, who you are, that's not enough. I demand, I need more. And that is idolatry. And so Paul is adding this here because what's going on is all these desires are saying, God, you haven't given us enough. And Paul is showing that it's not just enough to avoid certain acts. You must not sinfully desire what God has not given us. This is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount when he was saying, look, where does adultery begin? Where is adultery? Well, it begins in your heart when you're lusting after another person. You know, people like to hide behind, well, I'm just looking, I'm not touching. And yet Jesus and the Bible are clear. To look with lustful intent, to covet, is just as much a sin as to act upon it. And Paul adds to this that none of these must be named among you. He says there shouldn't be even a hint of these things. Our lives should be so marked by holy living that no one even raises an eyebrow and goes, How long knew they over there? Why were they together in that room? Not even a hint among us. Well, why should Christians hold to such radical ideas? Well, Paul tells us, he says, as is proper among saints. Now, seven times in this letter already, Paul has referred to these Ephesian believers as saints, which means set apart. You know, saint is not someone who lived an extra holy Christian life and then the church confers on them sainthood. From the Bible, every person who trusts in Christ is a saint. We're set apart. And this really isn't that hard a concept. Set apart is something for a unique purpose. Now, I'm not a car mechanic. If you open the hood of a car 
and you go, wait, look at the transmission. I'll just try and look like I know what I'm looking. Oh, yeah, the transmission. I don't really know a lot. But early on, as I was trying to save money, as I was married, I did change the oil a couple times. And I quickly learned, though many containers can hold oil, the kitchen containers are not the containers that Sarah wants to hold the oil. I mean, it could be washed. But those kitchen containers were set apart for food, not engine oil. They were, to use biblical language, holy kitchen containers. Not because they have some like mystical spiritual thing, but holy, saintly, just means set apart for a specific purpose. When you come to Christ, you are set apart for a unique purpose. You're no longer like any other person in this world. You're to use your life, your body, for His glory. For him. And so God's saying, look, you're set apart. Why would you use your body for what any normal person could do? You're to live a life that's for me. You know, many people claim Jesus as Lord, and yet they don't want to serve him with all of our, all their life. But God is clear. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, same word actually, porneia, but for the Lord. Our body, if we're saved, is to be used for God in his glory. And God calls us here to live without a hint of sin in this area and be above reproach as saints, as we're set apart to him. Now our society has fallen into the old Gnostic law. You may not be familiar with the term, but it's an idea in the early centuries, first couple centuries after Christ lived, that said, look, you're really two sides. You've got a spiritual side and a physical side. And, you know, your spiritual side, that's like when you read your Bible and you go to church, and that's how you serve God. But your body, well, that doesn't really matter to God. You can do with your body what you want, because that's not like your spirit. And it puts a distinction. Body, do what you want. Spiritual side, live for God. And yet, the Bible is clear. Everything, whether with our spirit or with our body, matters to God. Not only have we fallen for that lie, but we've also thought, or we're told, well, look, I mean, we're mammals. We're animals. I mean, animals just have urges and desires, and we have urges and desires. I mean, that's repressive to stop these things. I mean, the animals don't have any code of ethics, and so why should we put all these rules that make people feel guilty and bad for what they do? Look, it's just a bodily function. Come on. I mean, why are we being so uptight about this? So look, just let people do as they please. And yet, we don't often follow through that logic because, you know, animals sometimes eat their children. We're not really okay with that one. Animals, the bull does whatever he wants with whomever he wants. But we aren't really okay with that one either. And you know, how do they get their leader? Well, and the males fight each other till they might kill one another. Well, okay, well, we didn't mean that animal stuff. We just meant the animal stuff that we can pick and choose so we can live how we want. Well, that's the issue is we want to live how we want, except Christ calls us that he should be Lord. And, you know, we see this dichotomy we put between our body and our spirit. By the way, even so-called sex ed classes teach. Because what do they teach? They teach all about the biology, the physical side of things. But they never teach you what will happen emotionally, what will happen spiritually. UCLA psychiatrist, I'm not talking about some pastor here, UCLA psychiatrist Miriam Grossman describes when a freshman came to her and she was 
in tears. She was depressed because she had finally gotten a boyfriend and they had been together in that way and then he'd broken up with her. And in tears, she says, Why, doctor? She asked. Why do they tell you how to protect your body, but they don't tell you what it does to your heart? Grossman continues that in her research, she found virtually no educational materials designed to take young people beyond the physical dimension. You know, that's not just relationally. You know, the Bible talks about when you're together and intimate, the two become one. And yet now there are scientists who have studied and found when you are intimate, there are chemicals released between people that join you. There is a chemical commitment. So it's not that we are just bodies that just go through creating bodily functions. It's no big deal. God has made you body and soul. So friends, don't believe these lies that you're just a body. And God cares only about your spiritual life. God wants you to have joy and pleasure in all of life, and He cares about all of your life. However, this is often like fire. Fire in the fireplace, fire in the fire pit, fire at the campground are wonderful things. But when the fire jumps out of the fire pit or the fireplace, it no longer gives wonderful warmth. It brings destruction and burns everything in its place. But I mean, isn't this just a little too radical? I mean, come on, Pastor. I mean, no one talks like this anymore. I mean, maybe like if we lived in Bible times or Victorian England or, you know, those fun-killing Puritans. You know, but come on. This is 2023. And kids and adults, they're just going to be kids. This is pretty unrealistic, isn't it? Well... Yes, these are radical ideas, but they're no less radical than they have always been. In New Testament times, women were expected to be faithful to their husbands, but the men, they were allowed to have concubines, visit prostitutes, and do with their slaves, male or female, whatever they wanted. To them here, this biblical teaching was way more radical than even what we here today, because we have not stooped to that level yet. And when Jesus explained his teachings on marriage and sexuality, you know what his disciples said in Matthew 19.10? They said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They didn't go, that's right, we're spiritual religious people, we think this is the way it should be. They heard the Bible's teachings and they go, really? That's kind of extreme. And so we have a naive view of history when we think, well, okay, but this is 2023, but in the past maybe they could have dealt with this. No, throughout time, every person, every adult has had to deal with this. And the sad part is not so much that these ideas are radical for our culture. We should always expect that. The sad part is how often these ideas are radical for professing Christians. A dating website called Christian Mingle did a survey, and in it, 61% of self-identified Christian singles said they'd be willing to begin in this area without even being in love. Only 23% said they'd wait till they were in love, and only 11% said they had any desire to wait till marriage. So it's not just the culture at large. Sadly, even our Christian culture is not encouraging you 
to be faithful in this regard. And so to live in a way that's going to honor God is going to take a wholehearted commitment. It's going to include everything down to the way we speak. And that leads to the next verse. The mouth of holiness. Ephesians 5.4. Let me read it again. There it says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I have a really fascinating book in my study by a man named Randy Newman called Unlikely Converts. And in it, he tells stories of people who seemed like they would never come to Christ, who've come and trusted him, who've given their life to him. And Randy writes, In my interviews of their coming to faith, I never asked them about this topic, but the topic came up every single time. This issue is on people's minds. And how should we as Christians talk about it? Well, when it comes to these issues, we're going to say something. And if we don't, our silence on it will speak volumes. Our silence will either say, well, we're kind of too embarrassed or we're too unsure. I mean, we just don't know what to say or we're too afraid to talk about these issues. Yet it is our good God who made us male and female. And he purposely made the potential for procreation to be enjoyable. Thus, we must speak up. But sadly, as we know, much speak around this topic is either untrue or unbefitting. And Paul here warns us of three ways we shouldn't talk about it. He writes, no filthiness, foolish talk, or vulgar talk should come from our mouth. And this covers here the whole range of talking that does not honor God. It can be crudely talking about this good thing. It could be always joking around and you can never be serious Or it can be that person who, no matter what you say, is somehow able to put that twist on it into a sexual way. Like, what? Okay. Everything they say is a double entendre in turning it into a dirty joke. Now, this is not saying we can't be honest about reality. Nor is it saying these matters should never be discussed. Yet euphemisms can be a good thing. To say someone is passing away or passed away, is not to deny death, but not to just say it so boldly. To say that Adam knew Eve is not the Bible's embarrassment on this topic, but rather it's acknowledgement we don't have to go into the details. And while we should be able and willing to talk about these issues maturely, that doesn't mean you have to talk about and know everything. Romans sixteen nineteen says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Friends, especially young people, I know how awkward it is when you're with a group and someone cracks a joke and everyone laughs and you think, I don't even know what that meant. This is so weird. Should I be laughing? Was that bad? And let me please encourage you, please, please, Don't go look it up online. It will be awkward. It will be embarrassing. But go to your parents. They love you. And parents, when they come to you and sheepishly say, Mom, what does... And they kind of barely mumble it out. Don't go, where did you hear that? Well, they're never going to come talk to you again if that's the way you respond. You should be willing to say, 
honey. Well, what is that you heard? Where did you hear that? And then sometimes you can explain. And then other times it's very fine for you to say, honey, I honestly really don't know what that means either. And yet, sadly, God's given us this good gift and people have perverted it and twisted it so much that there's things that we don't even need to know about. Sometimes it's good to be innocent to what is evil. You know, sadly, we have come to a point where we are where Jeremiah was when he rebuked Israel. Jeremiah 6.15 says, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Now, are you at a state that you can hear every type of dirty joke and you're not even embarrassed? Again, my point is not that we should be embarrassed to talk about these things or that just the word and you're like, oh, how can we talk about this? It's so embarrassing. No, we should be able to talk about this. My point is, is everything crude, devolved into vulgar humor? You know, sadly, especially for men, many of us excuse us as well. That, you know, that's locker room talk. That's how guys talk. And sadly, some women have decided that rather than lifting the conversation, they're going to show their toughness by just descending and being as lewd and crude as the guys. Well, that might be how the people in the world or your office or your locker room or your squadron talk. But Paul tells us filthiness, foolish talk, vulgar talk are out of place. Now, Paul is not saying that, again, this is bad, but he's saying there's a proper context, a proper way. You consider a cannonball. I don't mean that thing shot out of a cannon. I mean when you fold your arms and legs and you jump into the pool and that's a wonderful thing. Everyone loves it. Unless you're doing it in your bathtub. That is out of place. You know, cannonballs have a right place and time. This issue has a right place and time. There's a good way and a bad way to talk about it. But in the wrong context, in the wrong way, it's not proper for Christians. And that is what Paul is telling us. And yet, notice what he says next. Because he's not saying, so what you need to be is long-faced. What you need is to be that person who can never joke, who must always be serious about everything. We know that because notice the contrast he gives. In the end of verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which I'll taste place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Well, now that really seems like an odd statement in the midst of these ethical commands. I mean, just consider a scenario, and hopefully this wouldn't be too bizarre to you, but consider a friend. They come to you and they confess, look, I'm really embarrassed bring this up but I have to tell someone I'm really struggling with pornography I've tried I've tried to stop I can't tell you how many times I've resolved that that was the last time but I keep giving in will you help me well what do you say next well there's all types of things you could and should say probably the first is to thank them for being honest and that they would trust you enough to open up about this very delicate area in their life. It's probably important to remind them of God's grace, that there is no sin that removes us from God's love. It's probably to come along them humbly and say, well, look, maybe that's an issue for me. Maybe it's not. But look, there's issues I struggle with and I need God's help through other people. So thank you for coming to me because I need help in other areas and to not look down at them, but come alongside with your arm 
to help them. And as you then move forward with the topic of giving thanks, ever seem important? Would you be like, well, yeah, I mean, giving thanks is all good. I mean, I try and do it fourth Thursday of the year every year, uh, November. But, I mean, giving thanks? Like, what's that have to do with this? Yet if Paul could join the conversation, I think he'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you see the connection? It's only a thankless heart that has the potential to feel the need to pursue sexual sin. This really gets us back to the core issue of covetousness. For that's when we think God has not given us enough. He hasn't given me enough of my spouse. They're not available enough. They're not willing to do what I want. I need a little more. Or God's not given me a spouse. I'm single. I have these desires and I have to get them to be released. And yet all of these are subtle, greedy attacks that believe we need more than God has given us. Thus, if we have gratitude rather than greed, we will sever the root of sexual sin. Rather than grasping for what we don't have, we'll give thanks for what we do. Heath Lambert writes, Thankfulness is the opposite of lust because the thankful heart has stopped prowling around for everything it doesn't have and is overwhelmed with appreciation for all the good things it already possesses. The logic of lust requires you to be discontent with what you have and pay attention to all the things you don't have. The logic of thankfulness requires you to focus on what you already have and to be overcome with thanks. Gratitude is the opposite of greed. You see, you're never going to win the battle against these sins merely by more willpower. Okay, this is it. This time, I'm going to fight, and I'm going to beat it. You're never going to beat it by stronger resolve. You're never going to beat it by feeling so guilty that you go, oh, I'll never do it again. I feel so horrible. You'll never beat it with just more accountability. All of those things can be good. They can be helpful in their place. But you must be changed in the heart. We need a joy in Christ that flows from thankfulness, as Paul is talking about. Thus, our mouths should be mouths of holiness. We must talk about all things with thankful, thanksgiving for not only what God has given, but also for the parameters He's given for them. But there's one other thing we must say to professing believers about these things, and that is that God takes these sins very seriously. This is our last, our third section, the seriousness of holiness. Look again at verse 5 where he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Literally, verse 5 begins, For you know this, knowing. It's like doubly uses the word to know. And Paul is emphasizing, look, all Christians should have this knowledge. And yet, tragically, many Christians in the U.S. don't seem to have this knowledge. They, in fact, disagree with the very thing Paul just said. They would say, well, it really doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you could live this way, but God forgives us. And yet, is that what he's saying? Well, no. You know, Paul begins here. He's repeating what God forbade in verse 3. And now he adds that those who do this, who live in this way, will not inherit God's kingdom. Notice I said live in this way. For Paul did not say anyone who has sinned in this way. Even after coming to Christ, even as Christians, we all struggle with sin. It is not 
out of bounds to think that a Christian would fall seriously in these areas. And yet God tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yet to truly confess our sins is in fact to acknowledge that it's a sin and to forsake them. Paul describes this type of attitude. Well, you know, I don't really agree with what this is saying. It's my life. You know, I can do what I want. And yeah, I mean, I've sinned. When I was a kid, I trusted Christ. So, you know, I know I'm saved. Well, on the one hand, you're saying, I'm going to run my life the way I want. On the other hand, you're saying, well, Jesus is my Lord. Well, Lord means master. If he's your master, then you're going to try to, that's the emphasis, try to obey. You know, that's a world of difference from someone who cries out, Oh, God, forgive me. I can't believe I fell into this again. I hate it. I'm doing everything I can to forsake it, but I sinned against you. God, please forgive me. Please change me. That person is a believer who's struggling with sin. The other person is one who thinks, well, I'm good because I did some act when I was younger, and I, when I get that box, that survey, I check Christian, you know, I'm not a Muslim or something. Well, no. Are you seeking to live a life that honors God? It's not that if you live perfectly, you are saved, but rather this is an indicator that you are. And so, friends, please be honest. Which of those describes you? You know, if you can talk about your sin nonchalantly and not care... You should be very concerned that you're the person described in verse 5. You know, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. You know, to make this perfectly clear, Paul then adds kind of the reverse in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again, there's professing Christians who say, ah, no big deal. Once saved, always saved. You know, you don't need to worry about your sins anymore. And these people have become desensitized to the seriousness of holiness. Now, I think many people approach this, they approach their spiritual life the way they approach their dieting. If you read much on dieting nowadays, you'll know that they'll often say, well, you need to change, you need to have new habits of eating, but it's okay to have a cheat day every once in a while. We've got to have them because we really want those things. And a lot of people take their walk with God that way. Okay, I'm going to try and honor God, but it's okay if I get a cheat day every once in a while. I mean, I've been really good, so I've kind of earned... This over here will know there are no cheat days allowed. Now, again, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. There is forgiveness of sins. You know, we're walking on very delicate ice here because there should be comfort in knowing none of us, even after we're saved, will be perfect. We are saved by what Jesus did alone. It is only our faith that saves us. It's not how good we were after we've been saved. But to sin and not care, is what we're talking about, is to be like the woman described in Proverbs 30.20. That says, This is the way of an adulteress. She eats, that's a euphemism, 
she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Yes, if you confess your sins, God forgives. But there's nothing for him to forgive if you say, I really didn't even do anything wrong in the first place. It's just, I mean, come on. I'm a human. I got desires. So it is true. If you are saved, you will always be saved. However, the evidence of your salvation is that you continue to persevere, that you continue to try and honor God, and that when you fall, you confess it as sin, and you cry out for the grace of Christ again. And if you get into a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, then you might very well still be saved, but I don't believe you should have assurance of salvation. You should wonder, how can I take the name of Christ while at the same time I turn and basically give him the bird and say, I don't care. I'm going to live how I want. Thus, Paul warns us here of deceivers who will preach to us comfort even in our sin. If there are many other deceptions in this area, we could mention many. Let me just mention one. And one lie, one deception, is that a romantic relationship is the pinnacle of life. If you love great music, you love Alan Jackson like I do. He's got one song, Living on Love. And it's a great song, it's catchy. He sings, Living on Love, Buying on Time, Without Somebody, Nothing Ain't Worth a Dime. Now, that's a great song, I like it, but that's a lie. Life is worth living even if you don't have anybody to love. Life is worth living whether you're single, single or married. Whether you are in the most romantic relationship that Hollywood could ever dream of, or you live with the boringest dud who was ever born, or... You've never dated or had anyone interested in you your entire life. You know, sometimes even in the church, we wrongly give the impression that life is great once you're married, and we're always trying to hook the singles up with someone to marry. Well, marriage can be great, but you can live a wonderful life, the most fulfilled life, without it. You know, Jesus did. He was never married, and he was the perfect man. In fact, you could go to 1 Corinthians 7 and it will tell you all the wonderful benefits that can come from being single. Thus, don't buy the lie. Don't let anyone deceive you that singleness is second best. But all of this is pointing out that God is going to hold us accountable for these things. What happens in Vegas is not staying in Vegas. What happens in the secret of your house or your bedroom or any other place not going to stay a secret now i mean isn't this god kind of domineering trying to put his nose where it doesn't belong and you know that talk of god's wrath boy isn't that that those religious nut jobs just trying to coerce people into their restrictive and oppressive views on these matters no because if you truly know god's love then you know god's wrath you imagine for a second i Sarah and I go out on a date. Our kids are kind of old to get babysitters, but we'll go back a few years and we get a babysitter and we come back and we come back and after the babysitter leaves, the kids just start crying and they're saying, the babysitter beat us. She locked us in our room. She didn't give us dinner. If we said, well, what's right for one babysitter is wrong for another. I mean, mom and I had a good time. What's the big deal? Well, no, if we love our kids, what are we going to do? We're going to be angry. We're going to go, what in the world did she do to my children? 
Well, God looks down on the universe, and every time we sin, we're sinning against someone else. And God, like a parent who's had their children abused, gets angry because He loves us. If God didn't love us, then He'd allow us to abuse each other and go, eh, who cares? I'm having a good time up here in heaven. Let them do what they want. It's because of God's love that He has wrath. And yet, you know what? Even more than that, it's because God's love that He sent His Son to take that wrath. You know, you see, this is a warning, but it's also a wonderful reminder. You know, as one person give it, said it, the lawgiver is also the redeemer. The demander for the payment of sins is the one who provided the payment for sins. Yes, God says, if you don't turn to me, you will be punished. But he also, in the same breath, says, but you can turn to my son and you'll be completely forgiven. I don't want to pour that wrath out on you, and so that's why I poured it on my son. And yet it's not only future wrath and judgment, for when we turn from God's rules in any area of life, we begin to experience just the natural judgment on this earth. We believe that we can view and do whatever we want and have little effect, and yet we are harming ourselves. I know we're getting a little long on time, but let me share a few facts and then a story, and we'll wrap this up. But sadly, nowadays, the average age a boy first encounters adult material is age nine. Time Magazine, now this is not like a preacher, this is Time Magazine. They ran an article a couple years ago that pointed out that a steady diet of this by young men leads to them when they're adults that they don't actually want to be in a real relationship. They prefer the virtual over the real. Now that is so dehumanizing. And yet we say, well, you know, it's, it's, anyone can do what they want. They're not harming anyone. Well, no, they're harming themselves. They're harming their future spouse. As well, if you watch movies, if you watch our culture, where is life great? Where do you really live it up? Well, college. You know, college, that's where you can go to the parties. That's when you go have all the fun. Well, you know the two most prescribed drugs at state universities? Birth control pills and antidepressants. Well, why anti? I mean, this is life. And yet when you live that life to its fullest, it's not fulfilling. When the fire gets out of its container, it burns and destroys. Well, what if we were to go, okay, well, what segment of society actually is enjoying this to its fullest? Well, you can look up studies, and it's not what you hear on common messages. It's middle-aged, married couples are the most satisfied in this part of their life. Now, you're never going to see that in a movie. And if they showed that in a movie, everyone would go, oh, that's gross. But what they say is gross is actually where the most pleasure is found. And what we say, oh, that's wonderful, is where people have to take antidepressants. You know, we are believing the lie, and we are harming ourselves. As a society, we are like Jim, drinking faster and faster from the salt water fountain and mocking those over there. Pfft, look at them drinking from that water over there. And yet, while we mock, we're killing ourselves. God's rules... His prohibitions in this area are not meant to curb your pleasure or joy in the least. Rather, God's rules and prohibitions are meant to maximize your pleasure and joy. Let's end with that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, a very difficult topic, 
but a very important one, as you gave us such a wonderful gift. And sadly, Lord, like all your gifts, we tend to distort and ruin. And so, Lord, would you help us? Lord, there are probably people all over the place this morning. Some are probably racked with guilt. Lord, would they know the grace that you offer, the forgiveness, that there's no sin we could do that you won't forgive, that you will forgive all if we turn to you, that there is power to overcome, that there is hope to change. Yet, Lord, there's probably others here who just don't care. Would you help them to heed the warning that these things do matter, that you will hold us accountable? Lord, would all of us seek to honor you in not just a Sunday morning, an hour and a half of a week, but would we want to honor you with all of our lives in response of joy in what you've done for us in your Son? It's in his name we pray. Amen.